Good health is a crown worn by the healthy that only the ill can see. Your health really is your wealth. Join us for the next hour as we explore disease and attaining and maintaining good health. This is Dischem Medical Monday, brought to you by Dischem, pharmacists who care. Welcome to Dischem Medical Monday. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Gerson. Thank you for joining us. We have a very special guest with us this week, Rabbi Dr. Akiva Tetz. He's, an, uh, as most of you already know, a former South African, now based in England, expert in uh, medical halacha and medical ethics. We're very, very privileged to have him here. Thank you, Rabbi Tetz, for joining us. Fine. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much to you. Uh, thank you. And uh, if any of you have got questions for Rabbi Tetz, please SMS on 34519. You can send a telegram on 0618951019. And you can call in on the studio in, on the studio number 0101403020. We're going to be speaking um, a few things today with, uh, with Rabbi Tetz. We're going to get the Jewish perspective on organ donation, end of life uh, decisions, and uh, the termini- terminally ill. So how, let's start about with uh, organ donation. I think it's uh, a lot of people are quite spe- scared to speak about it. They wonder can we donate organs? Should we donate organs? Um, should we start? So are we allowed to donate organs and should we donate organs? Okay, so I presume you, you intend to be, uh, d- begin the discussion with live organ donation. Yes. So let's talk about that first. That's of course, there, yes, there are two categories of organ donation, obviously, which, which challenge us halakhically. One is giving organs while you're alive, such as a kidney, and the other, of course, is giving organs after death. We can, we can talk about that as well. So let's, let's deal with the question of giving organs while alive. So giving an organ from one person to another <coughs> is uh, perfectly acceptable halakhically, provided you cover some halakhic basis. Let's take as an, as an example kidney donation. That's the commonest, probably the commonest um, uh, organ that's, that's donated from uh, live, live donation at the moment. And I'll give you the bottom line and then back up and give some background. The bottom line today is that giving a kidney is perfectly acceptable and a great mitzvah, tremendous chesed, tremendous kindness, and perfectly allowed, but it's not obliged. It fits into that middle range of risk, which means that it's safe enough that you can do it if you want to, but risky enough that you don't have to if you don't want to. Something that's less risky, for example, giving blood, is halakhically obliged. So if somebody immediately needs the blood and you have blood that matches, we would say that you're halakhically obliged to do that because you have a mitzvah to save a life, and there's no downside to giving blood. You're not endangered in any way by giving the blood transfusion. What, what percentage, say, danger would you be allowed to put yourself <coughs> in so to be able to donate an organ or save someone's life or to do a mitzvah? I'm not going to answer that specifically with a this, with this statistical number. Um, if, you, if you give me a – I think it's, if you let me talk about it from a different perspective first, I'll come back to that. Okay, great. The Perfect, reason is because you. the Talmud itself does not give a statistic, and we think about that in a slightly different way. So not to confuse the two discussions, I'll talk about the, the donation Perfect, issue. thank you. And okay. then I'll talk about risk stratification and how we approach it, and you'll see how the two fit together okay. with your permission. So the question of um, something that's very that's risk-free, like giving blood, we would say you're obliged. I'm not sure we could actually physically force someone to do that, but there's clear halachic obligation. <coughs> giving something like bone marrow is a little more problematic. After all, you're talking about puncturing the bone and possibly a general anesthetic, and uh, sometimes drugs are given to stimulate marrow growth before, before, um, before donation. That's a little bit more problematic. But when you get to things like a major surgery, uh, removing a kidney, there we enter the zone of risk, which makes it um, not obligatory by no means, and yet safe enough that it is acceptable. 
we're talking about a very low statistical level of risk. Let's, let, let's not forget that. In fact, the statistics show that people who've given kidneys actually have better health measures and live longer and more healthily than people who've never given a kidney. Now, I know that sounds very strange. But if you think about it, the reason is quite obvious, and that is that people who give kidneys start off healthier than other people. They're very seriously screened before they're allowed to give kidneys. They have normal blood pressure, many other parameters. But the statistics show that people who have given kidneys are, are very, very slightly compromised in terms of their, their health. There's a small risk of surgical accident or infection, but by and large, it's extremely safe. So we put it into the intermediate category where it's risky enough that it's not obligatory, but it is safe enough that you may do so. This is based on many halachic sources. I'll just give you one fascinating one. Um, there was a case recorded in the writings. There is a case recorded in the writings of the Radbaz, Rav David ben Zimri, great Sephardic halachic authority, who lived in Egypt about 600 years ago. He writes about, about a very interesting case that he was presented with, and the case was this. There was a Jew in Turkey who was accused of stealing. Now, I'm sure you know that the Muslim punishment for stealing is cutting off the hand, which is completely unacceptable Jewishly, completely wrong, but that is the Muslim judgment. This Jew was accused of stealing by the Sultan and sentenced to have his hand cut off. He managed to escape and he fled to Egypt. The Sultan in Turkey captured another Jew, jailed him, and sent an ultimatum to the Jew in Egypt as follows. He said, if you refuse to come home, I'll cut off this man's hand. Excuse me, I'll kill him. So here's your option. You either stay where you are, this man dies, or you come home, I release him and cut your hand off. So this Jew who is currently in Egypt, his dilemma was, do I remain passively here in Egypt while another Jew dies, or am I obliged to go home, sacrifice my hand in order to save his life? And in the course of answering this question, the, the Radbaz lays down some of the major principles that we use in this area. He, the bottom line, without going into all the complexity, although I recommend that your listeners look it up, it's a fascinating, groundbreaking case with no, novel halachic or Jewish legal thinking. The bottom line he comes to is he says that if you would go back and give up your hand, this would be perfectly permissible and a tremendous mitzvah, a great act of kindness sanctioned by Jewish law. But of course, you are not obliged. To sacrifice your hand, <coughs> one is not obliged, but one may. From this ruling of the Radbaz, we derive the fact or that principle that one is allowed to put oneself, one is allowed to sacrifice a limb or an organ to save a life, but one is not obliged to. In the course of this discussion, not only does the Radbaz lay down that principle, he also discusses risk. And he says that giving a hand, if giving a hand, would have significant risk to your life. And again, as with regard to your previous question, we'll talk later about what level of risk. If there was significant risk in giving the hand, risk of bleeding or whatever it would be, then it would be actually forbidden. If this risk is high enough. But if the risk is low, we're talking simply about the sacrifice of the limb without danger to the, to the donor. That would be, that would be a, a permissible action. If there's a small amount of risk, it would be permissible as well, and I'll talk about that as well. Um, the Radbus actually recalls in that responsum that he personally witnessed someone who had a minor injury to an ear who died from bleeding. Now, of course, the person might have had hemophilia. We don't exactly know what the circumstances were. But he points out that a relatively small injury could technically be, be life-threatening. But if you could guarantee that that would not be the case, this is the ruling. So in summary, when it comes to something like a kidney, the current ruling is that we are uh, certainly allowing it and, in fact, downright encouraging it. Rav Asher Weiss, one of the main uh, 
and best-known halachic authorities of today, uh, is very um, keen to praise kidney donors. He, in fact, he's, he said recently he's extremely proud of the fact that the Orthodox Jewish world has the highest level of voluntary live kidney donations, Amazing. probably of all any group. We have a low rate of giving post-mortem organs, and we'll talk about that as a separate issue. Many reasons for that. Orthodox Jewish community, Jewish community at large, gives a relatively low amount of post-mortem organs, but we have by far the highest level of people giving live kidney donations. In fact, in Israel, a, a great number of people have come forward saying they want to give a kidney to someone without even specifying the recipient. I myself had a young lady come to see me, a young mother, mother of six children, came to see me a few months ago, very keen to give a kidney to some unspecified recipient. You know, I had to uh, have a very serious talk with her about whether this is the right thing for her to do in her family context and whether her husband would agree. But the point is that we have a lot of people coming forward to do that. When we talk about organs that are more risky to give, for example, a liver or half a liver, there we are a bit more circumspect about the risk because there's a much more significant risk in giving, in giving a lobe of a liver. <coughs> and in fact, giving a lung has fallen out of favor from live donors. Professor Joel Cooper, one of the leading lung transplant surgeons in the world, actually pioneered this, this, this procedure, who's actually a Jewish, a Jewish uh, physician from, from Toronto. He told me some time ago that they, they try to avoid at all costs taking live lungs now because the morbidity and mortality to the donor is very, very significant. The procedure for using for lung trans, uh, transplant, for example, patient cystic fibrosis, what they usually do is take a lobe of a lung from two different people, sometimes the parents or two different people, and give part of a lung from each person to the recipient. But there's a very significant risk to the um, to the donor, so that's fallen out of favor. And now that postmortem transplantation has moved ahead so so effectively, lungs are preferentially taken from from non-living donors. I was in New York a couple of years ago, I remember, where a 54-year-old Jewish physician needed a lung, needed a liver donation. His 56-year-old brother gave him half his liver, and two days after surgery, the donor died. Had massive complications, overwhelming infection. And uh, I, I well remember that case. So giving a liver is a, a somewhat different category. But the standard today is giving a kidney, and we are telling the prospective donor that we are happy to accept the kidney, and provided that we know that they're giving full and, and informed consent with no, no coercive elements, we accept the kidney. Now, an issue that you may be interested to hear is how do you know you're getting full consent? This Okay, can we take, before we get on to full content, we're going to take a short ad break and then we'll speak about uh, consent in uh, kidney donation. This is Medical Monday brought to you with compliments of Discam, pharmacists who care. Welcome back to Discam Medical Monday. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Gerson. We are interviewing Rabbi Dr. Akiva Tatz um, on medical halacha. At the moment, we're busy speaking organ transplantation. If you've got any questions, please SMS 34519. Telegram 061-895-1019 or you can call in on 0101403020. We're just speaking about consent <coughs> that we encourage uh, uh, living uh, kidney donors people to give their kidneys while they are alive as long as we have their full consent. Yes, yeah, so the issue with consent is this. Um, picture the scene. You have a child, say, kidney failure. We test the members of the family and we find a family member who is compatible. Now, can you imagine the coercive psychological pressure on that potential donor in the family with all the eyes of the family focused on them saying, how can you refuse to give your kidney? 
and perhaps the dying little ch- little brother looking at the you know the sibling and saying how can you how can you refuse to give me your kidney obviously this raises a problem <coughs> of undue coercive psychological pressure <coughs> and therefore it makes it very difficult to know when the person says yes do they actually mean yes or is it the result of you know of pressure this problem has amazingly been largely solved actually was solved many years ago by a, a certain rabbi in New York who proposed a solution which is now used throughout the transplant community. And what's done is every member of the family is interviewed privately and with no other family members present. When the family member who's most antigenically compatible is interviewed, the interviewing team says to them, they say, look, you're alone in this room with us. You are a potential donor. You can save your brother's life because your kidney matches. We are the surgeons, psychiatrists, social workers here to help you. None of your family are present. It's our duty to tell you that you can opt to give your kidney if you want. If you agree, we'll take your kidney. If you don't, we'll never publish or disclose the fact that you are compatible. And if necessary, we'll downright falsify the record, which means that you will have to live with the agony of this decision for the rest of your life, but will take off of you the external coercive pressure of your family saying, <coughs> how could you not do this? This is a very interesting solution. This, of course, leads us to another broad discussion of what's considered to be the truth and, and lying in Judaism. In fact, in last week's Pasha, we met the, the comment in the Torah, the verse in the Torah that says, Midvar Shekhar Tirchak, keep far from a lie, and that will take us into a totally different discussion. But in these circumstances, it is absolutely permissible to not disclose the truth about compatibility, to give the potential donor the uh, uh, the opportunity to refuse without anyone knowing. Now, this has some spin-offs which are interesting. One of them is that there are certain circumstances where you cannot you cannot hide the truth, the reason being that more than one person needs to know. For example, and I'm sure your listeners will find this interesting, over the last couple of years, I'd say five years or thereabouts, the option has now risen to do what they call cross-transplants. A cross-transplant means that, let's say you have a mother who wants to give a kidney to her baby, but unfortunately it doesn't match. They find another mother who wants to give a kidney to her baby who also doesn't match, but where each mother matches the other one's child. So Mrs. A agrees to give a kidney to little B if Mrs. B agrees to give a kidney to little A. Both mothers agree. They sign consent. The operations to remove the kidneys of both mothers begin at exactly the same moment, so neither one can change her mind after the other one is given a kidney. And then the two organs are exchanged. Obviously here, more than one person needs to know. And this has become quite an amazing, quite an amazing thing. I gave a talk in London about this recently with a British transplant surgeon. While I was explaining this, he put up a slide on the screen, on the screen of 25 people in Britain. 25 people. Mrs. A gave a kidney to little B so that Mrs. B gave a kidney to little C. Mrs. C gave an organ to little D. 25 people right across Britain got an organ from somebody else's relative in order to kickstart a of course, the first person received nothing. The first person gave what they call an altruistic donation. No, nothing received. Simply kick-started the process. And everybody in a family got an organ from somebody else to increase. Was this, were these all Jewish uh, donor and not, recipients? Not at all. Not at all. All this was, Yes, this was simply a, 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 a chain reaction that was set in motion. The first series was a series of ten published in the New England Journal of Medicine about four or five years ago. And so that's called cross-donations. Obviously, in situations like that, many people are involved. And it's very hard to um, to keep things a secret. But by and large, we try very hard to be sure that you're actually giving consent. Now, if I may tell you a story, which you might find interesting. Yes, please go ahead. Here's a story that's interesting. Um, a very dramatic example. There is a rabbi in Bnei Brak by the name of Rabbi Yitzchak Zilberstein. He's Rabbi Yashif's son-in-law. I've had the privilege of studying with him for many years. Every month he gives a very, very well-known, well-attended 
shear or lecture to doctors, senior doctors from around Israel. Been going on for, for decades, actually. And he was faced with the following question. There was a family in Israel who had a four-year-old child dying of kidney failure. There was a transplant, I think, from his mother, which was rejected. <clears throat> a second transplant was done from a sibling, rejected again. A third family member gave a kidney, was rejected again. And the surgeons, unprecedented thing, wanted to try a fourth transplant. You're talking about a small, small child. You can't be dialyzed for the rest of your life. They wanted to try a fourth transplant from his 18-year-old sister. Now, the parents went to Rabbi Zilzplan and said to him, are we allowed to coerce our daughter? Can we put psychological pressure on her to give her kidney to save a little brother's life? Or would we be transgressing one of the Ten Commandments? Now, which of the Ten Commandments would you be transgressing if you psychologically pressurize someone to give something they didn't want to? And the answer is, Lot Tachmod, do not covet. The reason is as follows. If I pressurize you emotionally to give something to someone else or give it to me, and you do it, I cannot be accused of stealing. You gave it voluntarily. The fact that there was psychological duress does not cross the red line of theft. However, I'm guilty of psychological pressure, and that's called Lot Ahmad. So the, the biblical prohibition, the tenth of the Ten Commandments, which is do not covet, you would transgress when you coerce someone. If I come to your home and I say to you, oh, I like that object, I'd like to buy it for you, from you. And you say, no, it's not from, for sale. And I start putting emotional pressure on you in front of your guests, and eventually I pressurize you so that you give it or sell it to me. I have transgressed, Lord Tachmod. Can't be accused of stealing. You gave it to me. But I can be accused of uh, psychological uh, coercive pressure. So they said to the... Um, they said to the rabbi, if we put psychological pressure on our daughter and we say to her, listen, how can you let your brother die and so forth, are we guilty of, of Lord Tachmur? Now, what's very interesting is this rabbi himself was once in a situation involving the same commandment. He was standing in a shop in Bnei Brak that sells expensive silver <clears throat> when a very senior Israeli army officer walked in with his wife in full uniform, completely secular individual. I don't have to tell you that in Israel a big sociological divide exists between the ultra-Orthodox, as they call them, and the secular, the completely secular. This was a completely secular Israeli, very high-ranking officer in this religious shop in Bnei Brak. The officer and his wife chose an expensive item of silver. I think it was $2,000 or 2,000 shekels. And in true Middle Eastern fashion, the soldier said to the storekeeper, I'll give you 1500 and the shopkeeper said, fine, absolutely, no problem. Did the deal and walked out. As this uh, Israeli officer arrived at the door of the shop, Rabbi Zilberstein stood in his way. Now, this is a classic Israeli confrontation between ultra-secular on the one hand and ultra-religious on the other. Rabbi Zilberstein wears the long black frock and has a long gray beard. No question which segment of the population he represented. And switching from Yiddish to Hebrew, he said to the soldier, you just transgressed one of the Ten Commandments. Officer said, Rabbi, what do you mean? He said, you know why I gave you such a big discount? Because he was pressurized by your rank. That's a subtle form of pulling rank. He knows that you, one day you'll end up in politics, you'll be the minister of tax or finance. He didn't want to start anything with anybody who will be in an official position. That is a subtle form of coercion. I think that's a remarkable claim, by the way. But anyway, that's what he said. The officer stood there for a moment. He said to his wife, please wait here. He went back to the shopkeeper and he said, listen, I want to give you another 500. The shopkeeper said, no, forget it. I already gave you a receipt. It's not, nothing, not, nothing doing. The officer took out his checkbook and insisted on paying another 500. And I'm not sure which of those two men to respect more. The rabbi for sizing up his customer like this or a secular Jew who wanted to be completely clean and not get any favors that were not wow, good. amazing story. Yeah. Anyway, the rabbi said to the family that if you, um, there's no 
problem of lot tachmod when you pressurize your daughter to give a kidney. I'm not saying it's a good thing to do. I'm not saying it's a right thing to do. But you would not be technically transgressing lot tachmod. Lot tachmod is is a, is is brought into effect when I pressurize you for my personal avaricious desire for something, not when I urge you to do something and save somebody else's life. The upshot was the parents told their daughter that if she gave her kidney to her brother, they would give her their apartment. The concern was an 18-year-old girl with only one kidney might be a little less marriageable than normal. But if she comes with a nice big, big B'nai Brak apartment attached, that would offset the, <laughs> the issue. And so the parents told their daughter, you give your kidney to your brother, we'll give you our part and we'll find some other place to stay. Now, whether that's right or wrong is another discussion. In fact, Rav Zilberstein himself pointed out once that when it comes to selling organs, yes. that is an undue coercion. And we sh- if, the, if the question arises of financial compensation for giving an organ, it should not be done with a person younger than 20. In other words, we, there's a halachic principle that one is not fully mature until 20. Some halachic obligations only kick in when you're 20 years old. The heart of a child is close to money, as the Talmud says. And if you offer a 14-year-old, you know, $20,000 for a kidney, $20,000 is a lot of chewing gum or cocaine. I don't know what they buy these days. With their, <laughs> depends with their which society, depends which country, maybe. <laughs> That's right. But he was he, his feeling was to give... Uh, money to a child. This is an 18-year-old girl given a, an apartment. The, the halachic concept is compensation for the pain and difficulty and suffering of an organ donation is perfectly acceptable. Okay. But commercialization of organs is not acceptable. Okay. We're going to uh, speak about that again. Uh, we're just going to take a quick short ad break. I'm sorry to interrupt you. We're loving this conversation. Join us again in 30 seconds time. This is Medical Monday brought to you with compliments of Discam, pharmacists who care. Welcome back to Medical Mondays on 101.9 High FM. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Gerson. We're speaking to Rabbi Dr. Akiva Tat, and we're speaking now about uh, organ donation. Um, you just said, Rabbi Tat, that uh, paying someone for an organ um, and commercializing it would be halakhically not permitted. Is that correct? I wouldn't say it's not permitted, but very strongly discouraged, uh, a very strong possibility of taking advantage of uh, powerless people that we, we would not want. But paying... Um, uh, Compensation for the difficulty, the time of work, and and the genuine um, expenses and difficulties involved in a, in becoming a donor—that's perfectly acceptable. Okay, so we we've spoken now about uh, living donors. Can we move on to the massive discussion of um, post-mortem um, donors and the end-of-life decisions, which will follow that or take place around the same time? Right. So when it comes to a post-mortem donation, we have a number of issues here. And not necessarily in order of importance, there's the question of desecrating a body. Uh, desecrating a dead body in Jewish law, performing a postmortem of any kind, particularly when you remove tissue or remove organs, potentially transgresses three biblical prohibitions, three dorises, namely nivolames, which means desecration of a body. And according to many halachic authorities, there's no distinction here between Jewish and non-Jewish bodies. The rationale being that the human body is formed in a divine image, and that, of course, applies to Jews and non-Jews. Although we're not obliged to interfere in a non-Jewish society, they do postmortem dissections, for example, in medical school education. We're not required as Jews to, you know, to try to stop that. But that's not, not, not a good thing to do. So there's a prohibition of desecrating the body. Secondly, there's a prohibition of having benefit from a dead body. And thirdly, there's a prohibition of um, failing to bury part of a body. Now, potentially, of when you do a postmortem or you take organs for transplantation, potentially you could be transgressing all of those. Of course, we'll set those aside to save a life, 
right? As, as I'm sure most of your listeners know, in Jewish law, saving life is virtually the paramount value. We will break Shabbat, we'll eat unkosher food, we'll do almost anything in order to save a life. The three things, of course, we will not do to save a life are murder, perfectly logical, idolatry, and sexual immorality. Those three things we will not do, not even to save a life. Now, obviously, doing a post-mortem dissection or removing organs from a dead body are none of those, right? You're not transgressing murder. The person's dead. You're not talking about idolatry in any way, and you're not talking about sexual Im- immorality, but you'd have to be very strange <laughs> to transgress that with a, with a dead body. And so, of course, when it comes to desecration of a body, we would certainly do that to save a life. So those three uh, prohibitions, if we knew we were clearly saving a life, that we would set them aside. The gold standard in Judaism has to be not only we're saving a life, but it has to be a specific, immediately present life, which means taking organs and preserving them for the chance of saving a life later, that we would not be so happy to recommend. But when we have what's called a chole lefanenu, in other words, somebody here and now who needs that organ donation, we would do it. The definition actually is a little bit broader than somebody who's here now. <clears throat> we also uh, accept what the lawyers would call a real and present danger. So, for example, in Israel today, <coughs> skin and bone are harvested from dead people <coughs> and frozen, not because we have immediate recipients who need them, but because soldiers need to know that if they are injured or burnt, there'll be bone and skin for grafting. <coughs> and all halakhic authorities agree <coughs> that when it comes to harvesting skin and bone uh, or corneas, things like that, even though we don't have an immediate recipient, a country facing an immediate threat like Israel is perfectly acceptable to uh, collect post-mortem tissue even though we don't have an immediate recipient because unfortunately you're looking at a situation of potential danger. Same reason that the Israeli army is allowed to set up a field hospital on Shabbat even though there are no uh, 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 active hostilities because of course if hostilities do break out you won't have time to do it. So those are the, some of the issues about desecrating bodies. So to summarize, if we have a person who needs an organ and someone dies and we can use their organ to save the life of the recipient we would in fact do that. Now, the second problem we get to is what is known in transplant surgery as the dead donor rule. The dead donor rule means that in order to take an organ from a body, the body needs to be dead. Now, that might sound a little obvious to you, but actually it's a hotly debated topic in the transplant, uh, the field of transplant ethics. And until today, the default position quite clearly has been we cannot take an organ from a body unless that body is dead. If the body is dying, even imminently dying, even dying within minutes, that is not acceptable. Because you are taking an organ from somebody who's alive, de facto you're actually killing that person, that's not acceptable. So until now, the transplant community throughout the world has accepted the dead donor rule. The donor must, in fact, be dead. How do you deal with brain death? Well, as you, rem- as you, as, as you know, in December 1967, Professor Barnard transplanted a heart into a Jewish recipient in Cape Town. The patient lived only as a matter of some days. Um, the second recipient was in January 19- 1968 who was also, as it happens, a a Jewish dentist from Cape Town, lived a little bit longer. The problem there was how do you you take the the heart? The first heart was taken from a colored girl who died in an accident at Seapoint, and she was not dead. She was very, very seriously brain brain damaged. Now, the question is how how do you define death? Professor Barnard decided to rule that the girl who had irrecoverable brain damage should be deemed to be dead for the purposes of the the transplant, and he took her heart. This is obviously a very, very vexed issue, and the history of this uh, question of brain death is that in 1968, a, uh, a Harvard committee was convened to define what they would call later called brain death. The committee came up with a definition that they called irreversible coma. 
they actually said it was proved to be very, very difficult, almost intractable problem to define brain death, and they chose to call it irreversible coma. Irreversible coma means when the brain stem is completely destroyed, we can be pretty reliably sure that such a person will not recover. So they called that irreversible coma. They did not call it death. In 1980, a president's commission recommended to the United States president that the definition of death now be changed to what is known today as brainstem death or brain death. Brain death means that the brainstem is destroyed. There's no respiratory effort, of course, because the brainstem drives respiration, so the patient is uh, not breathing. However, the heart continues to beat by reflex activity. You can take a heart and put it in a dish in the lab, provided you give it enough oxygen and nutrients, it will continue to beat for some time. And so the heart continues beating by reflex activity, even though there's no breathing. Obviously, a person like that would be completely dead within, within a minute or two because there's no respiration. But if you quickly put them on a respirator, a ventilator, a machine that keeps the breathing going, then you will keep them, uh, put inverted commas, alive. Namely, the lungs will be functioning by virtue of the machine. The heart will be beating spontaneously. Circulation will be maintained. And if you look at the person, they'll look, they will look alive. They'll look like they're in a very deep coma, but they will look to all intents and purposes alive. Of course, they won't have reflexes. The brain is not functioning. The whole brain, or certainly the brainstem, is not functioning. And that became known as brainstem or brain death. <clears throat> this, be, this was accepted by the United States. All of the United States today accepts that. South Africa certainly does. Um, Virtually the entire world today defines death as brainstem death. Now, let's just pause for a moment to understand what this means. <clears throat> this means that you have a patient whose heart is beating, circulation is taking place, the body temperature is maintained, they have no reflexes, they cannot breathe on their own. Now, do you call such a person dead or not? Well, for purposes of transplantation, we need to call them dead because we observe the dead donor rule. If we call such a person dead, well, then, of course, you can take their organs. They're dead. The heartbeat is simply a reflex activity, and that's, that's not relevant. After all, after death, certain things continue. If a person dies by all, by all criteria, the nails continue growing for a few days, the hair continues growing, even a dead person. So it's, not, it, 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 it's quite a subtle issue to define exactly when death takes place. So brainstem death became the general standard. And so transplantation became possible. You need to take a heart while it's beating. You can't transplant a heart. If you wait half an hour after death, the heart becomes unusable. The cells die and you cannot use it. You can take bone and skin and corneas comfortably after death, but you can't take a heart or a liver. So brainstem death became the, the, the de facto definition of death. Not, I would say many ethics, ethicists are troubled by this, not only Jewish ones. I'll give you an example. I went to see a young girl who was brain dead not not so long ago. <coughs> this girl had a disastrous meningitis. Within hours, she became comatose. Within a day or two, she was clearly brain dead. I went to see her eight days later. She was in a local hospital. She met all the criteria of brainstem death. In fact, the neurologist was a friend of mine, and it was absolutely clear that the brainstem criteria were fully met. This girl was clearly brainstem dead. However, her circulation was being maintained. Her body temperature was maintained. She looked she looked wonderful. Um, the nurses told me the day that I arrived that she began menstruating that day. Now, here's a dead patient whose hormonal status is fully, is fully active. She's maintaining her body temperature. Her hormones are functioning. Is that dead or is it not dead? Today, the definition, the legal definition is that indeed that is death, and therefore we can do transplants. Now, I don't need to tell you that the Jewish community does not necessarily accept that. Most of what I would call the right-wing or major halachic authorities in the world do not accept that. The London-based initiative ruling some time ago, this is not acceptable. Um, the traditional great halachic authorities we look up to 
feel that this is not acceptable as brainstem death because the heart is still beating and that is not fully meeting the criteria for halachic death, which I won't go into, into technical sources for this in the Talmud, but that is the ruling. On the other hand, there are serious halachic authorities who feel that brainstem death is acceptable. The Israeli chief rabbinate, for example, today has decided to accept brainstem death. And therefore, this is a debatable point. Uh, obviously, you ask your own, let's call it local orthodox rabbi, for your personal ruling. Israel, fascinatingly, has a double standard. I don't know if you know about this. No. Israeli law today is that brainstem death is acceptable. It happens to be very strictly defined in Israel. You need to fill in a registry. There needs to be a very accurate testing. Um, many countries, by the way, require that the neurologists doing the brainstem de- testing are at least more than one. One at least has to be an expert in urology. One at least has to be someone not connected with a transplant team. We don't want vested, we don't want <laughs> vested interests. So we don't want a, a member of the transplant team anxious to get organs to be one of the ones who defines brainstem death. But if you meet those criteria, some countries require the testing to be done 20, 24 hours apart to be sure that actually there's been no, um, Subtle changes, <clears throat> but if you meet all the criteria, and Israel has particularly stringent criteria, then death is defined. And yet Israeli law allows you to opt out of that definition. Quite amazing. The law has two separate definitions. The default definition in Israel is brainstem death is acceptable, and the person qualifies as dead if they meet the criteria. If you do not accept that definition of death, the law actually allows you to choose a different definition, and you can refuse to have the machine switched off or to uh, give permission for transplantation. New Jersey has a similar law, and <coughs> New York has a similar <coughs> related type of a law in deference to the Orthodox community that lives there. Those are the two optional standards. And in summary, I would say to you, this is a halachic debate today. The traditional view is that brainstem death is not acceptable, but there's a very powerful view in Jewish law that brainstem death is acceptable, then that view obviously allows transplants. Okay, so we've got two questions uh, from our <coughs> listeners. The first one is there's something called the Halachic Organ, <coughs> halachic organ Donation Society. Um, they want to know if it would be permissible to enroll with the Halachic Organ Donation Society. Um, do you want to answer that uh, uh, first? Uh, if you're talking about a Halachic Organ Donation Society that that meets these criteria and lets people choose, I don't see any reason not to do that. If you're referring to the particular organization known today as the Lachi Organ Donation Society. They've been very vocal on this issue. Uh, some of that has uh, become, uh, uh, I would say, a bit of a um, strident debate <coughs> between them and other groups. Their official position, to the best of my knowledge, is that they allow you to choose your own. Your own um, they don't insist on one or the other set of criteria. I think they themselves are very pro uh, the idea of promoting brainstem death as an acceptable, fully acceptable, if not preferable option, because they, uh, I'm sure they're genuinely motivated to, to facilitate transplants. And so I think that's their position. I'm not fully familiar with all their specifics. But indeed, yes, there are donation societies that observe, uh, respect Jewish law fully. <clears throat> and I said to you, there is a position. Again, it's not the traditional, let's call it right-wing position, but there are those like the Israeli chief rabbinate who do allow that. Okay, thank you. Someone else asked, uh, I think they're referring to the story about the uh, young child. It says, does the girl give her kidney and did the boy do well? I think it's referring to a story of the 18-year-old girl on the Ford, the fourth donation. You know, I must admit, I never asked Rosalind to understand the outcome of that. Uh, <laughs> okay, well, next time, can we remind you next time you meet him, please? To, I will try. That to would be so. interesting to your donors, or maybe, yep, uh, maybe it's one that uh, to leave them in in suspense. I will guess that it was a woman who asked that question. Yes, it was a woman who asked that question because <laughs> obviously it does tug on the on the heart. Yes, and on the, the ones on the sensitive to to life. Yes. Okay, very good. Um, 
So um, you do uh, just to answer that uh, previous question of the listener, there are halachic authorities to be able to rely on and permissible halachic ways and societies that do allow you to donate your uh, organs post. Can uh, I interrupt you for a moment, yes. if I may? You know, uh, um, the, the criteria for uh, brainstem death. Yes. In ideal circumstances, there are those who say that is brainstem. But let, let me point out that in in real time, we are concerned that the criteria are actually correctly observed. You see, the problem is that if you define brainstem death um, by uh, as as a criterion for that, we need to be sure that it's actually the, the measures are c- correctly done, and machines aren't prematurely switched off. Um, so, so again, there, there are practical issues here, right? An ideal circumstance of responsible people doing the diagnosis, that faction would say that this is acceptable. But in practice, one needs to be very clearly uh, reassured that it's all been done correctly. Uh, I say this because there's been a movement lately to actually admit that brainstem death is not death and allow organs to be taken anyway. In other words, there's a debate going on right now as we speak in the literature about uh, about overriding the dead donor rule. Let's admit that people like this are alive. After all, they're circulating. They look in many ways like they're alive. But let's take their organs anyway because we're saving life. After all, it's irreversible coma. They're not going to survive. So let them die a little bit sooner and take their organs. Obviously, this is a very, very inflamed <coughs> flamed area. But it's not inconceivable that soon such a thing might be might be uh, allowed. And, of course, the next step will be, well, why do we need brain stem death altogether? Let's just take people who have extremely low quality of life or low life expectancy, even though they may not technically be brain stem dead, and let's take the organs as well. This is the fear that's on the horizon. Okay. And uh, what about uh, corneas? We're speaking about organs that would save lives, like a kidney, lung. We, you mentioned uh, skin and bone. Um, what about uh, corneas? Are people allowed? There, the patient can <coughs> be can be dead. They don't have to be um, brainstem dead, and the cornea does last after transplant. Right, that's a great. Question. I mean, after so, dying. Yeah. Yes. So here are the issues. When you take a cornea, as you correctly point out, you can do it uh, after death is clearly established. You wait a heart and lung stop, and you can wait. Uh, the the condition all over the world will not move a bo- body for some amount of time after conventional death criteria have set in to be sure that the situation is not reversible. Don't forget, we need not only a correct definition of death, we need irreversible criteria. If a person collapses and heart and lungs have stopped, but you could resuscitate them, we don't call that person dead. We need to wait a few minutes at least until the, con- the criteria become irreversible. The custom in most parts of the world is the Hebrew will wait an half an hour at least before touching the body, some cases 20 minutes, some cases 15 minutes. The, lo- the shortest uh, time lapse that's ever been allowed by any major halachic authority has been five minutes. Now, if you wait for five minutes, the heart becomes virtually unusable. <clears throat> but corneas are fine, as you correctly say. So if you take a cornea well after all criteria of death have been established, there's no problem. The problem that you get with taking a cornea is you're disfiguring a dead body, having benefit from a body, and failing to bury part of the body. The old process of using corneas was to enucleate the whole eye, so the whole eye was taken out, and then on the lab bench, they would take off the cornea from the eye. The rabbis who work in this field are very, very insistent that that should not be done. That's a completely unnecessary desecration of the dead body. And the procedure that's used today is simply the cornea is simply stripped from the eye. It's almost invisible, and that is much more halakhically acceptable, and I'll tell you why. First of all, it's almost invisible. So a gross desecration of the body is, is, is really not taking place. Secondly, the eyes of the dead are closed. So that the desecration of the body, even if the removal of the cornea could be seen, the person's buried with their eyes closed, so that makes it a bit more acceptable as well. 
And thirdly, one's taking a cornea to restore sight of someone else. The question here is, is restoring sight life-saving? If you restore someone's sight and you call that life-saving, of course we could do it. If it's just an improvement to the quality of someone's life but not life-saving, we might say no. The default halachic position is very clearly that a blind person whose sight you are restoring is considered to be saving their life. A blind person can fall down the stairs and break their neck, and therefore saving the sight of a blind person certainly qualifies for saving life, and so we would do it. Okay, we're going to take uh, another short ad break and then we'll be speaking about some end-of-life uh, decisions and terminal illnesses. This is Medical Monday brought to you with compliments of Discam, pharmacists who care. Welcome back to High FM 101.9 High FM. This is your Discam Medical Monday. I'm your host, Dean Gerson. We're speaking to Rabbi Dr. Akiva Tatz. We are busy speaking... Uh, organ transplant and end of life decisions. We've got a question for you, Rabbi, from Adam. Adam says a cornea transplant doesn't save a life, so why is it permissible to donate corneas? We just touched on that, but uh, if you want to continue. Great question to your listener, Adam, from your listener, Adam. And here's the ruling. If a person is blind and we restore their sight, that qualifies halakhically as life saving. A blind person is in danger, uh, even though many blind people cope brilliantly with their, with their situation. Nevertheless, theoretically, there's a danger to life. As you know, in Jewish law, we are, cons- we are concerned about even very small risks to life. And so saving the sight of a blind person is considered life-saving. What is a more interesting question is, is saving the sight of one eye considered to be life-saving? Somebody can see with one eye, but they need a cornea for the second eye. Well, on the one hand, you're giving them full binocular vision. Certainly a safety, a, a safety issue. On the other hand, they can see without, without, uh, with one eye. The ruling we follow in this case is that the taking of the corn is acceptable. First of all, you, you might be making a material difference to the saving of the person's uh, life. And secondly, as I pointed out, since the desecration of the dead body is absolutely minimal when it comes to taking a cornea, this is acceptable. Similar rule applies to needling the brains of fetuses to take out cells that might be useful in Parkinson's disease treatment and various other things. Since it's an invisible desecration, the, the, the external um, look of the dead body is not going to be actually mutilated in any way. That is more <coughs> acceptable. I'll just, I can't resist telling you one fascinating insight here. There was a question in the days of Rabbi Unterman, who was the chief rabbi of Israel at the time. They asked him, would it be acceptable for a Kohen to receive, <laughs> oh, wow. to receive the cornea uh, of a dead person since the coin may have no contact with a dead body. Now you're taking this coin, you're putting a piece of dead tissue, namely the cornea, onto him as having contact with a dead body. Well, the other organs not considered dead. I mean, a coin having a, a kidney and, I mean, those are living organs, I assume. No, no, good girl. Exactly, the, the, exactly the point. First of all, a coin certainly may have contact with the dead to save his life. Sure. But here we'll be talking about a cornea. <laughs> and if that's not considered saving his life, what would you say? In a very, very novel ruling, Rabbi Unterman says something. He says this. He says, think about what you're doing. You take in that cornea. The moment you put it onto the body of the recipient, it springs to life. <laughs> it's nourished by the fluids of the eye of the recipient. Is that really considered part of a dead body? Very interesting and novel ruling. Well, anyway, it was and now it isn't. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So this is a well-known, uh, you know, I would say uh, some would call it a brilliancy in, the, in this field. But the answer to your question is, Question is that um, this is done all the time and it, it's not a halakhic problem. Okay, and as as you mentioned uh, or touched on earlier, skin uh, people can donate skin because you know burns can be life threatening, especially if they cover a vital part of the body or a, a big part of the body. And uh, bone, I guess, for reconstruction of uh, certain limbs. Well, let me say this: in a country where we don't have immediate recipients, we're much more hesitant about that. 
If you have recipients waiting for skin, badly burned people who need the skin now, absolutely. As I said, in Israel, where you might not have an immediate recipient, but you have a country faced with a threat of, of attack and war, soldiers need to know that these organs will be available. The, the morale of soldiers is definitely life-saving in terms of a country's survival. And that's why we, t- in, in Israel, other places under uh, a, a realistic po- possibility of the need, that is halakhically considered someone in front of us, even though they're not technically and physically in front of us today. In Vilna, one year there was a cholera epidemic. Uh, this may be relevant in terms of modern epidemics, coronaviruses and other epidemics. There was a cholera epidemic, life-threatening. Mr. Salanta r- ruled that people should eat and drink on Yom Kippur. What happened was that nobody ate and drank. So he got up in shul on Yom Kippur. He made kiddish on cake and wine wow. and drank the wine and ate the cake in shul on Yom Kippur to show people this is a real danger to life. You may not be sick now, but there's a real and present danger. That is called danger to life in Judaism. Wow, amazing. What about uh, donating limbs? I know there's more research being done about donating hands, feet. Um, face transplants, things that aren't necessarily life-saving but will um, increase the quality of life? This is a good question. Um, I think that today you could probably make an argument that saving a limb indeed is life-saving. In fact, we have a category of threat to a limb on Shabbat where we talk about whether we can desecrate Shabbat or not. And in terms of a practical ruling today, threat to entire limb is basically almost always considered a threat to life. So I think probably we'd be able to cover that base. That way, a person who doesn't have arms or hands, um, you could make a very good argument that restoring their, their limbs might indeed be life-saving. And so in practice, I think that there would be. So a face would raise other issues. As, as you correctly said, face transplants are being done now. Um, so taking an organ, taking a, a face or part of a face of a donor to replace the recipient's face, Again, I, I think probably you could make an argument that there may be a life-saving component to that. What's more interesting is that recently uterus transplants have become pretty standard in one or two places, right? Now, what is the status of taking one woman's uterus? The way it's being done right now is actually live donors. So we don't have your particular problem. I was at a conference two weeks ago in the United States, in the Chemed conference, where the one of the leading experts on uterus transplantation presented her, her, her findings. About a 100 women have had a uterus transplanted into them from someone else. The first case was a girl who got her own mother's womb. 60-year-old mother gave her womb to her daughter. She said, I don't need it anymore. You take it. And the, the daughter became pregnant. And in a cesarean section, they removed the child and the womb. So that has been, at Baylor College, has become a standard procedure, done about 100 of them. Of the first 12, 10 had children. Wow. Okay, but that, there we're talking about don- a donation of a, an organ from a live donor. Okay, and, uh, and would the risk in that be permissible? Great question. Yes, I think today, a- again, as the, as, as the um, technology progresses, the risks will, will decrease. It's a very long and complicated operation to implant the uterus. The first operation took about 14 hours. But um, I think that's probably acceptable. As you know, the Torah clearly expresses a woman unable to have children as feeling in some way she might not be fully alive. I think that probably will not be an issue. Yes. Okay, we're going to take a short ad break and we'll continue. This is Medical Monday brought to you with compliments of Discam, pharmacists who care. Welcome back to our final 10 minutes on Discam Medical Monday. The show is really flown today. Um, we're very privileged to have Rabbi Dr. Akiva Tatz with us. We're speaking organ transplantation and uh, organ transplantation and end of life uh, decisions. Speaking about end of life decisions, uh, withdrawing of uh, care. When can I mean we turn the ventilator off for these people who are terminally ill or who are brain dead? 
This is a long and complicated subject. I'll do my best to give you a brief summary. <clears throat> I would urge your listeners who are interested in the subject to take a look at my book on the subject. I wrote a book which is called Dangerous Disease and Dangerous Therapy. It has a major section on end-of-life care, withdrawing and withholding therapy. As I always say to, to people, I say it's a complicated book. That's why you need to buy two copies. <clears throat> buy two copies, you'll understand it very well. But in all seriousness, I have a lengthy chapter there. Anyone who cannot get it, you're very welcome to contact me personally. You can email me. I'll be very happy to send you that chapter or discuss it with you with the greatest of pleasure. But in very brief summary, here are the principles. In Jewish law, we do almost nothing to, or let's put it this way, we do almost everything to save a life of almost any quality for almost any amount of time. The Mishnah says we'll break Shabbat, all Shabbat, to save a person who's been buried under some rubble or whatever it is, um, even in an almost hopeless attempt to save an almost, uh, a life of almost very, very low quality, even for only a few seconds. So our attitude to life saving is extreme. <clears throat> However, there are circumstances where we are permitted and sometimes indeed obliged to stop treatment. So in a very brief overview, in order to withhold treatment from a person who is terminally ill, we need the following criteria. We need them to be terminally ill, suffering terribly, and not want to continue. Let me say that again. We need somebody who's what we call chayeshah, that means terminally ill. Secondary, they must be suffering terribly. And thirdly, under those circumstances, they do not want to continue. The patient has to agree that they don't want to continue, or the family has no, to? Oh, great question. Uh, let me go through all those criteria. Okay. You know, it, it must be the person's personal wish. And, of course, the problem will be what happens when they cannot express their wish. Okay, one thing at a time. Terminal illness is, is defined quite broadly in Jewish law. <coughs> we call terminal illness one year. Chayeshah, technically, for the purpose of discussion, defined as a year. That's quite broad. You may be interested to know that Israeli law defines it as six months. In the year 2000, the Israelis passed a law called the Dying Patients Act, Chok HaCholea Notel Amut. And in that law, they decided to define terminal illness as six months. The reason being that the law there allows withdrawal of treatment. Um, it mandates palliative care. It exempts a doctor from any accident that occurs during sincerely motivated uh, palliative care. It has major life and death consequences. And the Israelis took the view, uh, advised by um, technical experts, that our prognostic um, ability is much more likely to be accurate over six months than over a year. So when you say this patient, we think they'll live more or less a year, the curve of accuracy is seriously degraded over when we say we think the person will live for six months. Even South African doctors don't always know exactly how long people are going to live. Sure, it's a very, a very, very difficult thing. So, therefore, the Israelis decided to cut back to six months, and the rabbis on the committee advising the government were quite happy with that after it was a cushion of safety. It was a committee of 34 people, by the way, that the government commissioned to help them with this decision. Can you imagine 34 Israelis on a committee? Two Israelis discussed the weather. It gets dangerous. Here you had 34 people. But amazingly, there was almost, agreed. <laughs> amazingly, there was almost unanimous consensus in the committee, and the Knesset cut back their deficient to six months. So we're talking here about a, a, a window of a year. Secondly, uncontrollable suffering, or an alternative criterion, an irreversible coma. But either suffering uncontrollably or comatose with no hope of ever regaining consciousness. And let me point out immediately that nobody today should suffer uncontrollably. We have enough drugs and tricks in our medical armamentarium 
basically to deal with any degree of suffering that's completely unacceptable for a person to suffer nowadays. Of course, in order to relieve suffering, you may have to do things that are dangerous. There's no question that's halakhically mandated. So if I have a patient who's t- uh, fragile, very ill, desperately ill in terrible pain, I give them morphine to relieve the pain. I know that in doing so, I may compromise the respiration. No problem halakhically. One is obliged to give the medication. There are many criteria, of course. Only the most qualified doctor around is allowed to do so. There are many, many restrictive criteria, but there's no question that halakhically, even if one has to impose the risk to remove pain, one is obliged to do so. Psychosocial pain is more difficult to treat. There's a Tosfus, one of the commentaries in the Gemara in Shabbos on page 50b. There Tosfus says that psychological pain, measure for measure, is worse than physical pain. Amazing. Tosfus says that the shame, the pain of being embarrassed, not, not being able to go among people, psychologically suffering. These things are greater than physical pain. And, of course, unfortunately, we have less tools to deal with that sort of pain than physical pain. But if the patient is terminally ill, they are suffering uncontrollably despite our best efforts. And thirdly, they do not wish to continue. We do not push on with surgery, chemotherapy, etc. We don't do, we don't invoke or, or impose new therapy in order to keep a person going when they're suffering in that context. Now, your question was, how do we know what their wishes are? Very briefly, here's the order of business. First prize, ask the patient what they want. If they're competent, they can tell you what they want, and we are confident that they are speaking sincerely. This is not pressure from the family, a feeling of hopelessness, or that they the financial burden on their family. Obviously, one needs rabbinic and medical judgment to be sure that the patient's wishes are genuinely expressed. That is the first <coughs> item. If the patient not competent, they demented, they're unconscious, they can't tell us, did they ever say in the past what they would want in such circumstances? If they did, great. If they didn't, we default to asking a family member what would this person have wanted. Ramoshi Feinstein says most children trust their parents to do the best for them. Most parents trust their children to do the best for them. So we ask a family member who can tell us what the patient's wishes were. In most circumstances, it's a spouse. Although between you and me, I know some spouses would be the last person to ask about a person's survival. But in normal marriages, we would ask the spouse. If the spouse can tell us or the relative can tell us what the person wanted, <clears throat> then we will take, their, we'll take their opinion. If they cannot tell us, we say, what do you think they would have wanted, knowing them as you did? If they cannot answer that question, we say, what do you think would be best for the person because they would have trusted you? If all that fails, we then default to, to what is called the average citizen in the street. I think in America it's called John Doe or Jane Doe. In Britain, you may be interested to hear, it's called the man on the Clapham omnibus. <laughs> now, the man on the Clapham omnibus, I have no idea who he is. He's probably a heavy, heavily tattooed and pierced individual. But whoever he is, he's the man on the Clapham. The notion being the average citizen in the street, and Jewishly that's perfectly acceptable. Rabbi Moshe Feinstein writes that. What would most people say in such circumstances of suffering? Rabbi Tass, it's been an absolute honor and privilege to have you here. We could speak probably all day love to have you back sometime. Thank you so much for spending the past hour with us. This is 101.9 High FM, Disc Medical Monday. Next week we'll be speaking coronavirus uh, from 10 to 11, Disc Medical Monday. Thank you again, Rabbi Tats, for joining us. It's been pleasure. a pleasure. It's been my pleasure. Thank you.